0: So I'm always trying to figure out, how can I do new stuff? So I just started making one-minute videos, a new one every single week, and you can check them out on Instagram and on Facebook, or signing up and just getting them sent to you by being on the mailing list. Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a special blessing that we only say once a year. Uh, and and you can extend it, some people say, into the, the, the summer months, in, in, in which case uh, there's still time to say it. But the really the ideal time to say it is in the month of of Nisan and we're 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 at the end of the month of Nissan, so there's still time to say it and and it's a fascinating blessing um like I say, it's only once a year, and I just want to read it to you because you see a lot of um the Jewish view of of life and of hope um is captured in this blessing and and I just want to kind of spell it out for you so. So, what is the blessing over um, uh, fruit-bearing trees? Imagine there's a special blessing that you say um, when you see a a fruit tree. So, so now, if I were to ask you, imagine you are the person you're you're um, sort of like the the spiritual authority who's going to kind of like um, kind of like set up a a, 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 a regimen for exactly how to give God the greatest praise for fruit trees. So how would you do it? I'll tell you how I would do it. I would probably wait till the um, tree is absolutely filled with fruit so that you see like God's full bounty before you and then say the blessing. You know, for instance, and I'll give you kind of a support for this position. You know, we say that... Um, Every single month has a different personality in terms of um, the flow of time, and I always like to contrast that with sort of like the the, the scientific perspective of time. Um, time, from a scientific perspective, has no flavor. It's just time is time. You know, it just it goes forward, and that's what it is. Whereas from the Jewish perspective. Time actually is different. One day can be filled with holiness. We have holy days, whereas other days are special, but not necessarily as holy as, as, say, the holidays or something like that. And each month has a different quality to it. Okay, so with that in mind, it's interesting that the spiritual personality of a month most expresses itself uh, in the full moon of the month. So, so we just had the month of Nissan. So it's that's the month of miracles. Nissan has the word nase in it. Nase means miracle. So it makes sense that the most Nissan day of Nissan would be the full moon of Nissan, and that's the fifteenth. The fifteenth of the month is when the full moon is um, on the lunar calendar. So, so what day is the fifteenth day of the month of Nissan? Pesach. That's the day that God took us out of Egypt, and that's the day of redemption. So you see, like, the full essence is expressed by the full moon. So why am I bringing all that up? Because I'm giving that as a support that if you want to make the blessing over the fruit tree, do it when the tree is filled with fruit, right? That that would be a great time. Okay, so I imagine you're all ahead of me at this point, because that is not what the sages instituted. The sages instituted the exact opposite of what I'm saying. And, and before I just finish that point, let me read you the blessing. I'm going to read it to you in English. And again, this blessing we say once a year on, on, on fruit trees, okay? And it goes like this. Uh, Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, for nothing is lacking in his universe, and he created in it good creatures and good trees to cause mankind pleasure with them, which is you know beautiful because um, a lot of people don't fully appreciate the fact that that God really wants us to be happy and to take pleasure in creation, and that fruit are these things that absolutely don't have to exist. Uh, you know, imagine. You can have God could have made the world that he wanted to make without delicious things. And by the way, he could have also made it without color. This world could have been black and white. I mean literally black and white. The color's black and white. And and God could have still accomplished everything that he wanted to do. So David Amela, King David, says in the Psalms, Taste and see that God is good. So, in other words, one of the proofs of God's goodness is the fact that we have flavors and 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 fruit and and all of these all these different kinds of fruit, by the way, um, and colors like every spectrum of color. None of these things have to exist, and and it's one of the ways that we see that God is genuinely good and genuinely loves His creation. Okay, so. I'm still getting to the point, and I want to zero in on this phrase in the blessing that we just read. Now, remember, this is the blessing that we say once a year on fruit-bearing trees, and it contains this phrase, for nothing is lacking in his universe. Okay. Now, here's sort of the surprise twist. Do you know when we say this prayer? When there's no fruit on the tree. <laughs> when you just have the flowers. You know, the, if anyone knows, um, I, now I grew up on 79th Street and Broadway in, in New York City, where basically all there is is concrete. You know, when you, when you look up into the sky, you can see like a narrow corridor of sky between two skyscrapers. That's, that's how I grew up with concrete and just like little strips of blue sky. So. So I'm I'm not the nature authority, but, but any of you who have grown up around trees and nature and things like that, know that before fruit comes out on a tree, the first thing that you see is a flower. And then what happens is like a bee comes and, you know, pollinates this flower. And then the next thing you know is like there's a little tiny fruit in there and then it grows. Okay. So... So we say this blessing about God's total bounty. You ready for this? When there's just the promise of fruit. When there's just the promise of bounty. When there's just the first indication that the blessing is coming down. And and that's and that's the point that I think is so compelling about this. And why I think it contains so much about the Jewish view of life. And I'll give you another example of this, something very, very beautiful. And I heard this from Rabbi David Hertzberg, Ola Vashalom. He said, he said the following that the, that isn't it intriguing that the Jewish day actually starts at night? Not just at night, but when there are three stars in the sky. And he used a phrase that I'll, I'll never forget. He said that for us, We begin the day with the promise of light. Isn't that beautiful? Those three stars in the sky, that's the promise of light. And we make the blessing over God's bounty before there's actually any fruit on the tree, when it's just that flower, when it's just the promise, the first indication that the bounty is coming. So, so, if you think about it, it's, it's, there's a whole program and a whole guide for life in this, which is, which is the importance of belief, that, that something doesn't have to be there yet for you to know with certainty that it's coming and and with that is sort of the antidote for living with uncertainty because a lot of people it's sort of like until they have those results until it's in my hand I can't I can't emotionally afford to believe it so so please don't misinterpret me I'm not saying that therefore you know if you if you meet someone who's in a business that you're interested in and you go ah he's going to give me a high paying job at his company <laughs> i don't need to have the job offer in my hand to know that that's coming that, that that's not what i'm saying i'm not i'm not saying that you know what i am talking about is the real foundations of life which is knowing that god is good and believing in that goodness and that it's going to become manifest. And with that in mind, I want to discuss something we, we had it in this week's haftorah, and and it's so psychological um, that I it, it's 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 sort of making this point that we're discussing from a different angle, and I just want to go into it. So David a Melech, King David is going to move his. Headquarters, right? He's he's in the process of moving his headquarters from Chevron, right, the city of of where Mor Samach lies, the Cave of the Patriarchs. He's going to move his headquarters um, to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, and sort of like this is like the official, formal moving of the capital of the Jewish people to Jerusalem. So it's a, in Jewish history, it's a very big deal. Okay, and of course. Like how how better to sort of like mark the transition from from the capital of the Jewish people being in Jerusalem than to transfer the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets given to Moshe and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, right? The Golden Ark, the Aron Kodesh. Moshe uh, David and Melech is going to transfer it to Jerusalem. So that's that's what we read about this past Shabbos, and. Let's let's go into this account because it's fascinating. So so David Amelik builds this like great new like transport system, this like new like you know, like it would be the most deluxe pickup van in in in, in, in our language. Um it's a it's a it's a wagon and it's being drawn by by oxen and um and there's just singing and dancing and it's its great celebration and the ox shifts and the cart rocks and the ark of the covenant it seems is about to fall out and and Uzziah comes and tries to catch it and God strikes him down and he dies on the spot right right and it's yeah. it's it's a it's a very it's a it's a very confusing moment because he's he's very um positively motivated and 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 yet you know he gets this essentially this instant death sentence so so what's going on exactly by the way um the the Midrash says something interesting that he was actually punished he was uh, say Rhonda Rhonda? If you can uh, mute yourself, that would be great. So so anyway, um, so just as an aside, because this was new information for me, and it, it's not contained in the account of the Haftorah, uh, but it gives you a totally different perspective. We won't dwell on this, but, but just so that we can be uh, Better Torah scholars, let's just know this opinion. It says that he was actually punished because he relieved himself in the presence of the ark. So, so that, that's, we're not going to focus on that opinion, but, but just you should know that that opinion exists. Okay. Anyway. So, so God strikes him. Now, what, why does God strike him? And the, the classic explanation is because he was under the impression that We support the Torah, as opposed to the Torah carries us. Okay, and in fact, there's a medrash that says the following: that the kahanim, who were the ones who carried the ark, um, at the time of the Mishkan from place to place, they had poles and they carried the ark, and these were like the holiest among the Jewish people were in charge of carrying the ark that the that the poles actually floated above their shoulder so even the ones who were carrying it weren't carrying it because the the Torah lifts us up we don't lift it up okay we also lift it up in our own ways but nonetheless this very fundamental sort of like approach has to be kind of ingrained in our head it's for this reason and i say this for anyone who would like to do this on their own, it's, I, I think it's a, a good thing to say. Before I lift up the Torah, every once in a while, I'll get the, the aliyah of lifting up the Torah, raising the Torah. I always have in mind, or I always try to have in mind, before I lift it up, that, that the Torah is about to lift me up. I'm not about to lift the Torah. So, so you know, that's, that's, that's all based on everything that we've been saying. But anyway, we haven't gotten to the point yet. Why am I bringing all this up? I'm telling you about something very important psychologically. Remember we were discussing the fruit trees and how the promise of God's blessing should be we should live with the reality of that as though as though it's here, you know? So 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 how does King David react to the fact that the someone just got struck down, you know, by divine judgment in front of everyone. So David Amalek cancels the event on the spot. And he houses the Torah um, at someone's house named Obed nearby, okay, who is a levy. And, And that's it. Just everything is on hold. Everything's on hold. Now, word comes back to David, and I don't know if this was days, weeks, or months later. I don't know how long a period this was. But but that Obed, who had the ark in his home, and obviously must have been a super righteous person, um, that his entire household was receiving tremendous blessings. And, and it makes sense, you know, he, the, the presence of the ark was was in his home. Like, yeah, makes sense that, like, great blessing was coming down. Okay, now here's why I'm bringing up this whole chapter, okay? My question to you, and just take a quick moment to think of the first thing that pops into your head, is if you were King David... What would you be thinking when you were told that tremendous blessing had come to Obed's house? How would you react to that? So let me give you a few different possible reactions. You could have felt like, wow, when I had it and I was sort of supervising the event, someone just died in this horrible way. But when he has it, tremendous blessing is coming down. So obviously, God is not happy with me, but he loves him. Um, That's one possible reaction. Here's another possible reaction. Well, God doesn't want me to take the ark to Jerusalem. He stopped me right in the middle of the process and he loves the fact that it's right there because he's blessing him with tremendous things. So maybe I should just rearrange my plans and not bring it to Jerusalem because God likes it there. That's another possible reaction. And, you know, if the if the story went in these ways, I would have been like, okay, yeah, that, that's just what it is. Okay. Or, Or God is even more angry at me because God totally shut me down, and I haven't seen anything tangibly change in my life, whereas that person is receiving tremendous blessing, and that's a sign to me that God is angry at me. It's another way to react to the situation. And all these, I think, are, are understandable reactions, very human reactions. Okay, so now let's see, how does King David... right? the soul of the Messiah, the soul of the Messiah. How does King David react to this? He says, he's receiving blessing? Fantastic. We're back in business. And he goes and he takes the ark and he continues on to Jerusalem. Amidst great dancing and music and joy. Not only that, but but this detail, just like I found stunning, it says now you know, back in the day, you had different types of sacrifices for um, offerings, right? If if someone were just had no cash, right, they would bring a um, what was called a korban mincha, which was basically just flour, okay, flour and some oil. There was no livestock, no animal, okay. And and God actually loved the Korban Mincha. He loved it. That was like maybe his favorite offering of all of them, because it was really coming from someone who had almost nothing, and they were really sincere and dedicated. Okay, then you had maybe next up, you know, price-wise, was probably a a bird, a dove. And one of the beautiful things, just to show you how in tune and how protective God is of our dignity, um, um, you wouldn't take off the feathers of the dove because if you took off the feathers of the dove, it would look like you were offering something so skinny and paltry and and God didn't want it to look like you were making like a meager offering. So for that reason you kept all the all the um feathers on, which which is different from when you brought an animal where you take the hide off. So because you would take the hide off, you would think, oh, you should also take the feathers off, but you didn't because God wanted you to feel good about your offering, which is, again, beautiful. Then you had goats and you had sheep. You had different offerings like this. And then you had like the Rolls Royce offering. That was an ox, right? An ox was like, you had a cow, but you know, the the, the oxen were like, that, that. that was serious cash, okay, back in the day. Now, with that in mind, listen to this. When David and Melech decides, like, again, and we're going to get into the psychology of it in one moment, but when he when he hears that Obed is being blessed by having the ark in his house, and David and Melech goes, we're back in business, this is great, let's go. And then they're singing and dancing, and then it says in the account, every six pieces— Okay, now i i I, di- I didn't look it up officially. Like, what's the official length of a pace? I don't know. I'm assuming it's like one leg's breath, right? It says every six paces, David and Melech offered two oxen. <laughs> now, do you know how many paces there are between? I don't know how far he was away from Yerushalayim, but it almost doesn't matter. I mean, let's say he was halfway. Who knows? But the point is, is that that's probably thousands of oxen. Probably thousands of oxen were offered amidst dancing and music and total joy. It was like quite the event, right? All right. So... You see, I don't know that you can do what David Amelech did there unless you believe in God's total goodness. And if you look at David Amelech's life, see this is this is like one of the most crucial points that I think escapes almost everyone. If you look at the, li- the lives of our greatest tzaddikim, our greatest holy people, both male and female, you'll see that almost uniformly they all had the hardest lives, the most difficult lives. And we have such a weird relationship, especially in today's society, with fame, that we we think and wrongly, by the way, but we think that somehow fame and happiness and fame and a charmed easy life all kind of go together and if these people are historically holy famous people they must have just had just endless blessing and endless you know lack of trouble and it's 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 the opposite it's actually the opposite you know, probably if you need to find someone who lived one of the most difficult, trouble-filled lives ever, it's King David. His own son tried to kill him and lead a rebellion against him. Um, his, his family thought nothing of him. When, when Shmuel came to anoint the next king, David a father brought out all of his sons and didn't even bother presenting David in front of Shmuel. It wasn't even like a consideration that he might be uh, a candidate, much less the actual king. And there, there are countless examples of this. Shaul, the present king, tried to kill him, hunted him down. Time after time, setback after setback, the whole the whole situation with Bathsheba and their first child unfortunately didn't didn't survive. It just he had Saras at one point, King David. The one thing after another. And and yet when we think of David Amelech, what do we think of? just poet, musician, warrior, king, lover of God, right? How could he have been all of these things with the life that he had? Because everything was beside the point. The only point was there's a God in the world and I love him to pieces and he's good. (laughs) And whatever is happening in my life, it's almost beside the fact because there's a God in the world, and he loves us to pieces, and he's good. I once met someone, and this was one of the greatest moments of my life, and I saw this quality on display in the realest way and then tell you this story his name he's um He's famous, especially in, in Chabad circles. His name is Rav And he wrote a book called Sobota. And, and, and he, um, you know, this is going back maybe 30 years ago. He was probably in his 80s, 30 years ago. Okay. And I had the privilege of meeting him. He was a Russian Jew. And he was sent to Siberia um, to a labor camp. Which you know most people didn't really survive those places, and they and they acted what why did they send him to a labor camp by the way, a prison camp in in Siberia for teaching young children torah right so imagine his heroism that even under the threat of the communist regime, he wasn't intimidated and still taught Torah to young children, so they sent him to Siberia, okay and um you know, my, my, my wife's grandfather died in Siberia, um, Seder night, Seder night at the, at the Pesach Seder. Um, so Siberia was a real thing, you know. Anyway, so Rav Nanus was sent to Siberia, and he he called his book Sabota, which means Saturday in Russian, because he refused to work on, on Shabbos. And they tried to get him to work on Shabbos and, 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 he refused. Um, anyway, you know, when they stopped harassing him, he was going to the mikveh. You know what it is to go to the mikveh in the, in the freezing Siberian weather? It's like it, it's, it's, it's beyond. It's, it's beyond Masiris Nefesh. You know, people would crack open the ice and then go into this water, which you could have a heart attack in water like this. It's so cold. So he's going to the mikveh, and the the Soviet guards told him to stop, and they pointed their guns at him, and he refused to listen. He kept on going to go to the river, and they shot their guns at him, and the guns didn't fire. And this was one of many examples of miraculous ways that he was saved. And when they tried to kill him in this way, and they saw that their guns didn't fire, they decided that he truly was a holy man, and they left him alone after that. So so anyway, um, I had a chance to meet Rav in person. And he was, like I say, he was probably in his 80s. I think I was in my 20s at the time. And I was with a friend of mine and we were both sort of like getting into into Torah observance, getting into Shabbos and things like that. And we had this wonderful opportunity at the house of... uh, Josh and Lillian Richie in Los Angeles. They they lived at six thirteen North Las Palmas, right? <laughs> they told me they they bought the house for the address, right? And when Sh- Reb Shlomo would come into town, he would do all of his events there, so and stay there. So anyway, they they thought that maybe I would like to meet Rav Nanas, and of course I would. So my friend and I came to see him. He's sitting alone in their dining room. So there's like this long wooden table, and he's just, you know, this elderly man just kind of sitting at the table. And the two of us walked in, and um, and my friend asked him, kind of got right to the point. It was a short visit. My friend said to him, did you ever wonder why Hashem was doing these things to you? And this was his answer and i heard it with my own ears he said it's none of my business can you imagine i heard it with my own ears this is this is a moon this is faith this is complete Trust in the goodness of God. This is making a blessing over a fruit tree when there's no fruit on the tree. (laughs) Of declaring that it's day when it's still night out. Because you know the truth the deepest truth which is informing absolutely everything that the sun is going to shine and so with this in mind let's go even deeper let's let's relate it to where we are right now in terms of the year because right now we're on a journey of faith you know what that journey is we're counting the Omer. We're on our way to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. And the holidays of Pesach, leaving Egypt, and Shavuos, receiving the Torah, the Ramban says that they're so closely related that really it's like one holiday, and that all of these Sphira days in between are like one long cholamoid And the Ishbitzer Rebbe, I heard from Reb Eli Chayim, Reb Shlomo's twin brother at the Seder table, that that we have an egg on the Seder table, and and you know there are a lot of different interpretations of what's what's an egg doing on the on the Seder table. And so Reb Eli Chaim said in the name of the Ishbitzer, something so beautiful, he said, you know what, an egg is just half the story. What's the other half a story about the egg? Is the chicken that comes out of the egg. So why do we have an egg on the Seder table? Because Pesach is just half the story. Leaving Egypt is just half the story. What's the other half of the story? Getting the Torah at Mount Sinai. And as I always emphasize, um, the whole story of leaving Egypt begins at Mount Sinai. You know, Mount Sinai has different names. One of them is Horeb. And it says that Moshe was journeying in the desert of Horeb, and there he sees the burning bush. And God says to him, you're going to take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them back to this spot. Meaning to say that the whole holiday of Pesach begins at Shavuos, begins at Mount Sinai. That the whole purpose of being taken out of of Egypt was to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. And I, I always joke because I think so many people actually think this, not... Not consciously, but the, the, you know, they sort of just think this, you know, which is that God takes us out of Egypt and he's like, okay, I got two million plus people in the desert. I need a good activity for them. What am I going to, what am I going to do with them? Oh, I know. I'll give them the Torah. That'll, that'll keep them busy. You know, it's like that, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. That's a, it's, it's all culminating to the purpose of absolutely everything. And that's what we're journeying toward, but we don't have that yet. In other words, that's the fruit. That's the fruit. But but we don't have the fruit yet. We're, we're journeying toward the fruit. Now, what if I were to tell you, just so you see how how trenchant these metaphors are, that they're not just metaphors, that we have different New Years. We have the New Year for years. That's Rosh Hashanah. We have the New Year for kings. That's Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Do you know that we also have a new year for fruit-bearing trees? Did you know that? You know when that is? Shvuos, when we receive the Torah. So we're actually heading toward the blossoming of the fruit, but it's not here yet. And that's why we're making this blessing right now over the blossoming of fruit trees before there's any fruit on it. Because we're journeying toward it. Because our whole journey through life has to be predicated on the fact that even if something isn't manifest yet, it exists. You see, as the Rambam says, God exists outside of time. He exists within time, and he also exists beyond time. Which means that the past, the present, and the future is all before God. And since God has already promised to bring Mashiach, to bring this ear of perfection, from God's perspective, in some dimension, it actually already exists. It actually already exists. So the fruit, which we can't see with our eyes yet, is actually there. The messianic age that we can't actually fully experience yet actually already exists. And we're heading toward that. And that's really the journey. Because, you know, Egypt isn't just a country. Egypt wasn't just a place that we were enslaved to thousands of years ago. Egypt represents exile and imperfection. And, you know, we leave that, and where do we head? We head to the 50th day. The 50th day is when we receive the Torah. But, you know, if we were to take an X-ray of the universe, of all the heavens, the top of heaven is the 50th gate. So the number 50 in Torah represents the ultimate. The highest light, the highest, highest, highest light. And that's where we're heading to. So, in other words, what I'm trying to tell you is these days, the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai is a microcosm of exile to the perfection of the entire world. And in God's eyes, it already exists. Now, let me tell you what Rob Fromer says, because this is, this is amazing. This is amazing. He says that we can already, you see, it's not just the world that's going to be perfected. Each and every one of us is also going to experience our highest form of achieving our potential right? We're not there yet. But just like the perfection of the world in God's eyes already exists, the perfection of each one of us in God's eyes already exists. So in other words, you might say, I'm never going to get there. But on a very deep level, even though you're not there yet, that version of you actually (laughs) exists in the universe already. Isn't that amazing? There is a perfect version of you where you got it right on every level. You got it right. That already exists. And Rob Firmer says that you can actually draw down from the light of your own future perfection into the present. You can energize yourself by drawing on that future light and bring it to you now. So the way we do this is through this journey of counting the omer, counting these days. Now most of us are kind of like focused on this idea that, you know, we're one step closer, we're one step closer. I want to give you different ways to visualize this now, okay? You see in in Hollywood movies right? You have the ticking clock. That's that's kind of like a storytelling phrase. Ticking clock means that there's suspense, there's big stakes, like you have to do it by this time, or everything goes wrong. And probably the greatest example of a ticking clock in a movie is an actual ticking clock, <laughs> where you see like, there's like sticks of dynamite. And then there's this like little, you know, watch face on top of it. And it's going... 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and, you know, you're, you're clutching, like, you know, the, the, the arm of the person that you're at the movies with, like, they've got to, like, you know, diffuse it before it reaches zero. So if you want to create anticipation, how do you do it? You count down to zero, right? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. Ah, you're going crazy. How do they do it in the NBA? You know, for you basketball fans, you got the shot clock, right? 24 seconds to shoot. Got to get the ball up before it hits zero. If that's the case, then certainly, if there are 50 days between Pesach and Shavuos, we should start with the number 50, and then we count down, and then it's like two more days, one more day, and then we get the Torah, right? Right? So God had a different idea. (laughs) God said, no, 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 no. We're going to count up. (laughs) We're going to count up to 50. And you're like, why? Why? It works so well in movies the other way. If you want to get us excited, do it the other way, God. And God says, listen, first of all, I invented the movies. (laughs) I'm the one who came up with the ticking clock. Don't want to do it this time. Got a different idea. We're going to be counting up. Okay, so what's the idea then of counting up? The idea is that each day of the Omer, we're fixing a different aspect of ourselves. We're cycling the highest light, which comes down on the first day of Pesach. We're cycling that light through us, and we're improving another aspect of ourselves, and we're lifting ourselves up day by day, stage by stage, till we reach the top of Mount Sinai. That's the idea. Now, with that in mind, I just have to tell you a quick thing about myself, just because I find this exciting. (laughs) So please indulge me for one moment. Each... Each day has a sphera kind of like correlation, okay? So today is the 14th day of the Omer, okay? So on the sphera chart that's Malchus Shebagavurah. Now a few years ago I discovered another way to journey through the sphera period and I recommend that everyone does this. You can come up with all sorts of wonderful ideas and you can even write your own book just based on this one tool, okay? which is that each of the um, Sphira uh, names um, correlates with another great holy person um, in Jewish history. So Chesed is Abraham, Gevurah is Yitzchak, Teferit is Yaakov, Netzach is Moshe, Hod is Aaron, Yesod is Yosef, And Malchus is David, King David. Okay, so that's that's how you do it. Now, here's the cool part: each day you've got the levels within each of the different categories. So again, today is Malchus, Sheba, Gavura. Okay, now Malchus is David, and Gavura is Yitzchak. So David Yitzchak, that's my name. David Yitzchak, that's today. <laughs> so, so that was exciting for me. Um, so, if you, and then it's the fourteenth day of the Omer, and I realized this last night. I said, "Huh, that would be cool if that were the gematria of my name." And sure enough, fourteen is the gematria of David. So, so today is sort of my day. So, anyway, that was my little personal note about today, but. Um, if, you, if you, um, you can ask yourself, what was the aspect of David that was contained within Yitzchak? You see, and you can do this every day. Like earlier this week, I came up with one that sort of like blew my mind a little bit. It was the day of um, Hod uh, Sheba Gevurah, which is the Aaron within the Yitzchak. And I was wondering, well, what what is the Aaron within the Yitzchak? And I thought to myself, well, Aaron was the coin Gadol, the high priest who brought all the offerings, and Yitzchak presented himself as an offering. I thought, whoa, that's that's cool, <laughs> you know. Um. Anyway, so the idea is is that why are we counting up? Because. Each day, we're trying to figure out how to rectify our personality, our mitos. And each day, we take a step up till we reach the top of Mount Sinai. Okay. Now, now there's another aspect to this. And there's this halachic curiosity about the counting of the omer that I didn't realize until like very, very recently. And um, I I think this might be a common misconception. So so listen to this idea. I think that a lot of people mistakenly think, I know I was among them, that every day we would bring this barley, that that was the Omer offering, was barley. We would bring this barley offering to the Besa Mikdash. And we would do it 49 times, and of course, the 50th day is, is, uh, is ishfuas, And then we bring two loaves of bread, actually. Okay, the, the offering changed. And that, that wasn't the case, believe it or not. On the first day of the Omer, which is the second day of Pesach, we would bring a barley offering to the, to the Mishkan or to the Beis HaMikdash, right? And that was it. There was one offering that was brought for this entire sphere of period, only one. And the rest of the time, we're counting the days since we brought the offering. Isn't that interesting? Let me tell you how unusual that is. Did you count how many days it's been today since you shook the Lulav (laughs) and You say, today is the 214th day since I shook the Lulav and or today is the 87th day since I lit Hanukkah candles. Right? Did, does it, there? It is. This is unique in Torah. This is unique. And now, let's think about it, because we bring it the day after we've left Egypt. In other words, once we're officially out of Egypt, that's when we bring it. Now we have to figure out why a barley offering. Well, a barley offering um, back in the day. Animals would eat barley, okay? People would eat wheat, which was considered more refined, right? But barley was an animal offering. So think about it. Every day we're counting. I brought a barley offering. That stands for my animal nature, my animalistic nature, the lowest aspect of myself. Remember, I've just left Egypt, so I've just been a slave. What do you want from me? I'm, I'm not on the highest level. That's just normal, right? So every day I'm counting, I'm one day further away from that lowest aspect of what I used to be. And I'm going up and up and up. And then it hit me, that's what they do at AA. AA. You know, this is like, if you need a source for like one year sobriety, five year sobriety, 10 year sobriety, 20 year sobriety, it's all about the counting of the Omer. It's like, this is, I am this far away from that person that I was when I was the lowest slave. And now I'm out of it. Isn't that amazing? So now, now I want to Put these two ideas together, because I think this is really important. You see, a lot of people think that I've left Egypt, and um, now I'm going toward Mount Sinai. I'm going up, right? But David, Amalek, King David says in the Psalms one of the you know core Jewish principles, which is. Sumerah, the ase tov. Turn away from bad and do good. In other words, if someone wants to legitimately grow spiritually, there's this twin engine that has to be in effect. We have to leave the bad and go toward the good both are active active expressions of our free will. So so the sphere of period what I'm trying to tell you is the sphere of period is one aspect of it is going toward Mount Sinai. The other aspect of it is leaving Egypt very consciously and actively on a regular basis so both of these things are in effect okay so now let's let's go even deeper okay Rafirmer brings the Ariha kodish who says that on pesach 9, um the light from the 50th, 50th level shines. Now, there's more to it than that. You see, the first thing that I had learned, actually, why is matzah matzah? So it says even in the Haggadah, and this is what we all grew up with, the idea that, um, remember, matzah is flat. Matzah is like the realest, realest food there is in the entire universe because it doesn't pretend to be anything that it's not. It just is what it is, you know. So, so matzah doesn't rise up. When it rises up, you know, if you look at like a loaf of bread, it's just filled with air, like hot air, we would say in a negative way, you know, spiritually speaking. And there, there is a time when, um, when, when, when we want. Bread. Okay? In other words, see, it gets deep. I'll I'll just try to say very, very quickly. But the idea is that we're bringing this barley offering and then it becomes bread. At at Shavuos, it becomes bread when we receive the Torah. And it's the only time all year that we bring a Chometz Dick offering to the Beis Amigdash. And by the way, it doesn't go on the altar itself because it does have chomets, but it's leaned against the altar. But, but nonetheless, on a very, very deep level, and we've talked about it more at length at other times, one of the opinions about the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden was actually that fruit from the tree of knowledge was wheat. Which is, you know, kind of mind-bending because we don't think of fruit as uh, wheat as fruit, but but that's for another time. That is one of the opinions in the Gemara, and so when we got the Torah, we we were like the Gemara says Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Amazing rectification that happened when we when we when we received the Torah and accepted the Torah, which means. That this, if it was wheat, if that was the fruit, then it's most appropriate on that day, on Shavua's day, that the offering should be bread, which is made out of wheat. Because now we can take that quality and we fully sanctified it and repaired it. Do you understand? Okay. Anyway, that's an aside, but that that in itself is fascinating and worthy of an even longer discussion. But let's get back to the the night of Pesach because I want to discuss these 50 days, okay? So the light from the 50th shines down. Now, it says in the Haggadah, and this is what we're all used to, the idea that the reason why the matzah didn't rise was because we left Egypt in a hurry and it didn't have time to rise. Okay, so that that may have been true also. But I want to tell you what the Divrayol, the Satmar Rebbe says on a, on a deeper level. He says the night that we left Egypt, the light from the fiftieth level, the top of heaven, was shining down. And in the presence of that most exalted light, there can be no chumitz. Because remember, Khumitz leavening stands for the Yetsahara, for the for the for the for the evil inclination. And in the presence of that light, there is no evil. Therefore, the matzah did not rise because it could not rise. Do you understand? It's it's very deep. In other words, matzah is so holy because it became impregnated with that highest light. You know, it's no wonder, it's no wonder that our rabbis teach that when we eat matzah, that that it's almost like medicine for the soul. So, so that's the idea of the light coming down. But Rav Fromer brings from the Ari something even more amazing, which is on the, on the night of Pesach, we ourselves are lifted up to the 50th gate. Can you imagine? That's Pesach night. And as I tried to emphasize to you in the, in the talk before Pesach, Leaving Egypt is only half the story of Pesach. The other half is even beyond getting the Torah at Mount Sinai. The other half is the redemption itself. So Pesach is actually a very forward-looking holiday. Okay. So so now that's the night of Pesach, this highest light. But now here's here's what I want to share with you. The next day after Pesach, the second day of Pesach, we're dropped down to the first level. And we begin counting up to 50 again. And here's my question. How could God pick us up to the 50th level and then drop us down like in a free fall? (laughs) Plum! Down to earth. How could God do that? We're like at the top of the top of the top of the top and now we're at the bottom? Why would God do that to us? Okay. Now, if you want to make progress in Torah, if you want to understand this world more deeply, the Torah more deeply, God more deeply, your life more deeply, you must begin any exploration with the premise that God is good and that God loves you. Because if you don't begin with that as your premise, you're going to reach wrong conclusions. Okay, so now... If our question is, how could it be that God is bringing us up to the highest level and then dropping us down to the bottom? How is that a manifestation of God's goodness? That's our question. So, I puzzled over this for for years, actually. And and I have an answer for you. Um, So... So it's a teaching that, that, that you might remember that we've gone over. A beautiful, beautiful teaching. We know that Abraham Avinu, Abraham, our father, had 10 tests, each increasing in difficulty. The 10th test being the, the greatest test. And we know that was offering up Yitzchak, his son, on the altar. And, um, and everyone agrees that that was the 10th test, except Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah is, you know, a Rishon, and one of the greatest Torah authorities. So if Rabenu Yonah says that wasn't the 10th test, that it was only the 9th test, then we have to take his opinion very, very seriously, and we have to delve into what he's saying. He says, like, amazingly, like, mind-bendingly, that the 10th test, right, which makes it the most difficult test, was buying the Cave of the Patriarchs from Ephron. So, you know, everyone has the same question. How could that be harder than sacrificing like your, the miracle child that you had when you were 99 or 100 years old and Sarah was 90 at the time? You know, like, how could buying that, that cave be a harder test? So, So his answer, because I I, I love it so much, because here's another example where you you really see like a lot of all of Judaism kind of like boiled down into like one little nugget, you know. He says, Avraham reached such a tremendously high spiritual level when he offered up his son. But you ready for this? The goal of Torah, the goal of Judaism is not to leave this world. The goal is to take that highest light and to bring it back down into this world. Isn't that beautiful? To me, that's like, wow. You know, like that just... Yes, yes. (laughs) I'm signing on again. Um, So then what's the 10th test? What's the 10th test? Could Avraham Avinu maintain that expanded level of consciousness The consciousness that he reached, you know, by just devoting every iota, every atom of his being to God, could he maintain that level of consciousness when he was back in the real world, so to speak, negotiating a difficult business deal with someone who was trying to rip him off? Could he bring that light from above back down into this world? during the most mundane, trying circumstances. That's the 10th test, because that's the ultimate goal. So using that as a model, I want to use that to answer our question. How could God bring us up all the way up to the 50th level and then drop us down? Okay, so we have to rephrase the question. I think that what God is asking us to do is to take all the inspiration of Pesa all the knowledge that nature itself doesn't really exist, that everything is just God. It's all just God. Everything is just God all the time. To take that that knowledge and for us to bring it back down into this world and then to apply it to every aspect of ourselves And when we connect that light of the infinite, we increasingly connect ourselves to the most perfect version of ourselves. Because we've taken that light from the 50th, we're cycling it through every aspect of our personality, and we're raising ourselves up step by step back to the 50th gate, back to the top of Mount Sinai back to the rectification of the entire world, and even beyond that, to a perfection that didn't even exist in the beginning. Because remember, we're not just trying to get back to zero after the whole tree of knowledge incident. I love to quote Reb Shlomo, who says, you know, so many people think that that God created a perfect world and we ruined it, and this whole exercise of Human civilization is just trying to get it back to zero. That's not what it is. As he says, if, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there, right? In other words, the world was never completed from the outset. And that's why we were created, to be partners with God to finish the world. So when we reach that 50th level again... It's going to be something that was even beyond the initial creation, beyond that initial aspect of perfection. Beyond, 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 beyond. Okay, so this week we read Parsha Shemini. Um, Shmini is, is really interesting. There's this classic um, Rizhner Torah, which is that it's talking about the dedication. Shmini means the eighth. So it's the eighth day when the when the Mishkan itself was actually dedicated. And and that was like this, you know, microcosm of a perfected um heaven and earth. So and it said God rejoiced on the completion of the Mishkan, this tabernacle, like he did when he created the entire universe. So it was a very big day. So that's what the eighth day, Shmini, which means eight, is talking about, the dedication of the of the Mishkan. Um, so, with that in mind, the big the big question is: Why does it begin with the word Vayahi, which the Talmud says portends something negative? In other words, something bad's going to happen. So, why Vayahi? It's such a such a exciting, happy occasion. And the answer the riv- the gives is: each one of us suppo- was supposed to be the Mishkan. It wasn't supposed to be a building each one of us was supposed to be that focal point to bring down the shekhinah the this this extra level of revelation of god's oneness into the world and so it's it's a very appropriate thing for us to be reading right now because when the world becomes perfected when it when 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 the world reaches the destiny that was implanted in it from the very beginning the perfection of the world was Envisioned by God before He created the world and was implanted into the world from the very beginning. When the world actually achieves that, that full blossoming, each one of us is going to have the status of being a Mishkan. And so, so it's appropriate for us to be sort of like summoning this idea of the tabernacle, summoning this idea of us not quite being the tabernacle that we're made to be yet during this process when we're lifting ourselves up. So that 50th level that we're counting toward is also on another level talking about the realization of each one of us being that focal point to bring down the divine, that that completed tabernacle. Thanks for listening.